Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Adam Rappaport. Today we are talking about whether or not there is such thing as bakers and non-bakers. We'll be joined by Amanda Cohen, owner and chef of New York City's Dirt Candy Restaurant. But first, we're joined by Bon Appetit Restaurant and Drinks Editor Andrew Knowlton, who's joining us today to talk about his favorite restaurant in America, The Waffle House. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Adam. Listen, you grew up going to the Waffle House, or you can get to that in a moment, but for the, us Northerners, explain t- what is the significance of the Waffle House, and it, it's, it's, it seems to be more than just food to you and a lot of people yeah. in the South and Southwest. Well, I think for a lot of Southern towns, when kind of the main streets disappeared and, and with it the diners and those kind of community gathering areas, uh, the Waffle House kind of replace that. And as you go along, I don't care where you are in the South, any interstate, you can't drive more than 10 minutes without seeing kind of this yellow scrabble tiles of the Waffle House spelled out over the pine trees. So it's become a late night place for most of us. But also, you know, I found out that there's a huge community that goes to these Waffle Houses every single day. It is their diner. They know the names of the people serving them, the cooks. In some cases, a gentleman who at the store I was at, he has a framed picture of himself on the wall because he's eaten there so many times. Yeah, what I find fascinating about the Waffle House, there's 1,764 of them within 25 states. There is a sense of community, that there are regulars at each one, and that people know all the waiters and the grill people who work there, correct me if I'm wrong, but for a long time. These aren't, this isn't like you work there for three months and go find another job. No, I mean, I worked, you know, three shifts at one store, and there was at least probably five people who had worked there 15 years plus. So as much as it is you think, oh, it's a temporary job for people, just, you know, they need a job or something. There's people there who are lifers and they're damn good at it. Yeah. And it's a very uh, supportive company in that sense. But you can't just walk in and get a job, right? You had to go through, you, you have to go to Waffle House University. How did, oh, yeah, how did yeah. your whole process work? So yeah, I had to go to uh, the kind of a hard knocks uh, one day training session. And they even let me buy a little bit easier. But, you know, you learn the lay of the land. They give They gave me a manual, literally the size of like chemistry 101 in college. So I was nervous when I left after my training session. I went over to the Waffle House Museum, which is in unit number one in Avondale Estates, part of Atlanta. Um, and what year did that one open? That's 1955. So if my math is correct, it's 60 years this year for the Waffle yeah. House, which is one reason we wanted to celebrate it. Can I just interject, yeah, if yeah. I may? You know what also turned 60 this year? Bon Appetit magazine. Really? Yeah. 1955. I believe so. Wow. Yeah, it's all synergistic. Yeah, it's perfect. It was meant to be, Knowlton. All right, so there, it has this late night culture, and and you'll see everything from frat boys to people coming after a wedding to guys in the neighborhood. I mean, you see quite an interesting cast of characters. We were in Charleston, South Carolina, about a year ago. Yep, and we saw the Burger King. There, Whatever, there was right? a dude, a uh, 30-something-year-old guy <laughs> wearing a crown and a leopard skin pelt on his shoulder with a tuxedo. And I'm like, yo, man, is it like your birthday? He's like, no, just just, just out for the night. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and then behind us, there was a bride and groom in her wedding dress. Yes. And it's like 2.30 in the morning. And yes. they were, we were all lit, but they really yes. were. Uh, it's just an amazing, amazing crew. So my question is, as an employee, while you're working there, how do they keep things civilized and like you know in terms of you're allowed to be a little bit rowdy but not too rowdy as a as a, as a customer and when do you cross the line yeah well i think first of all a lot of them have seen it all and heard it all um you know 
at busy Waffle Houses throughout the South on Friday and Saturday nights, they will post cops out, out in front of the front door just for that reason, to maintain law and order. Um, not a lot of people that, I, when I was there, were pulling up in cabs, if you know what I mean, at the Waffle House at 2 in the morning. Um, but there's only two things. You know, obviously, if you're going to fight, they're going to try to kick you out. But, you know, unless if you drop an F-bomb here, here and there, they're okay with that. They'll tell you to tone it down. But the minute you, any homophobic or racist, anything like that, and they will kick you out. And they'll call the cops on you, too, because... You know, the cops know how to get to the Waffle House. So yeah. They're kind of pretty quick, you know? <laughs> They've been there once or twice. Whether <laughs> um, eating there or, or um, solving problems. So, so during, during those rushes, I mean, you, you've got the one thing of crowd control and just keeping everybody orderly. But you're also, you're having to cook food very quickly. So explain to us, like, what, what is the basic system for getting the waffles, the, the patty melts, the, the omelets, like boom, boom, boom. How many people are working the grill? What's, 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 how does it work? Right. So the goal when somebody walks through the door at Waffle House is to get them in fed and out the door in 19 minutes that's wow. the, that's the manual on it obviously on a friday and saturday night uh when there's crowds that can be more difficult so uh you know when i was working i tried to drop the menu right when the people sat down i bring them water ask them if they want sweet tea if they want an arnold palmer and then the, the salesperson will come and take the order on a little yellow tab. And it's not just your normal. Wait, wait, wait. We call them salespersons and not waiters or waitresses? We call them associates. If associates. We're being, they call All them right. associates. All right. um, so that associate would come and take the order. Then they would come back and stand in the kitchen on their mark. They call it, There's actually a little spot where they would yell to the grill operator. And it's a three-order system. It gets really complicated. I'll try to be brief. But it's pull, drop and mark system. Pull is if you're cooking any proteins in that order. Okay. So pull a quarter, which is a quarter hamburger patty. Okay. Drop an order of bacon, which is always three slices. They would say double order if you had two double yep. orders. So they do that. Then you're going to drop your hash browns. Hash browns, which are an iconic dish. Iconic dish. That's the ones that come scattered, smothered, covered, diced, chopped. All I think there's a million and point two ways Cheese, to order onions, your chill, all that ham, stuff. Ham, anything, country gravy. Yeah. So you drop those. So they either say drop it in a ring, which is actually a metal ring. That's so you have a perfect or scattered, where it just comes scattered on the grill. The, the cool, way I like the it. cool kids like it. The scattered. cool kids yeah. and always. Always order your hash browns well done. Yes, because that ensures crispiness. And then you have your mark system where the, the salesperson will actually tell the grill operator what the order is. So mark a um, quarter, quarter cheese, uh, hash browns, scattered, covered, smothered, chopped. And then that grill operator never sees a ticket, but will mark a plate, literally taking a jelly or a mayonnaise or a ketchup packet, and where they put it on the plate, whether it's at 3 or 9 o'clock, uh, or flip it upside down. That tells them what that order is. That is fascinating. And if I was a, if if let's say you came over to my uh, store in Atlanta and you had been a grill operator and I needed help at two in the morning. I love they they call them stores. They call them units. Units. Okay. Units. units. I call them stores, All but right. we can All call right. it a unit. Yeah, yeah. That if you came into that unit. And, and it was at 2 a.m. and I had 20 plates, you could look at every 20 of those plates and know exactly what was going on that plate. That's amazing. All right, so let's let's say I come in at 11 p.m. and it's crowded, but it's not insane. Yeah. If I sit down with four of us in a booth, you drop the menus, the associate comes over, places our order, we, you know, we each get some waffles and this and that. How long between our placing the order and the food hitting the table should it take? Seven to eight minutes. Wow, boom. Um, 
All right, so now you worked three straight shifts from 7 a.m. to 7 a.m. Um, in your store, your unit, near where you grew up in Atlanta. Um, what did you eat over the course of 24 hours? Yeah, that was tough because, you know, I've been to Waffle House twice in 24 hours, but I ate four meals at the Waffle House. <laughs> Do you remember what they were? Yeah, yeah. Well, the first thing I had, I had a Tuttle House omelet, which is their famous omelet where you whip the eggs in a um, ice cream uh, Blender. Genius. All frothy. All frothy. Super frothy. Two minutes and 20 seconds is how long. And then you kind of, it gets really super puffy. So I had one of those with uh, American cheese. What time was that? That was, I took my first break. I started at 7, about 10.30. All right. So worked worked up an appetite. Worked up an appetite. Had had some hash browns. I did them scattered, covered, smothered. I didn't get them peppered, which is jalapenos, Mm. because it was a little too early. What did you drink with that? For that. I drank all day. I drank Ulnar Palmer's, which is half lemonade, half sweet tea. All right. So you had, you had your Tuttle's omelet for breakfast. What was lunch? And then what time lunch, was that? I had a late lunch. I had a, um, I had a bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich on, on toast. Lots of mayonnaise. Um, and, but I didn't have hash browns. I had grits. Mm, interesting. I like that. And it's- you can get the grits any way you can get the hash browns. So you get grits scattered. I'm not scattered, well, but covered, diced, peppered. I was going to say, what if you want the grits on the griddle? Has that ever been done? People always claim that there's this huge, you know, a la in and out in Cal- uh, out in, out west, that there's a secret menu. There is a secret menu. It's whatever you want to order. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so that was lunch. Dinner? Dinner I, was my go-to order, which, which is, is which is the patty melt, not on Texas toast, but just regular toast, hash browns. And then a side of uh, country ham. Country <laughs> ham, classy. Okay, so that was your third meal, but in 24 hours, so you need that middle of the night meal, then right? Then the middle of the night meal was something that I'd learned from a customer there. I got a well-done pecan uh, waffle, mm. but then you can get poached eggs at the Waffle House. Yeah, really? Yes. Those are, that's not easy to make no, under pressure. No, uh, no. The guy, guy who taught me how to cook, Shorty, who was probably 4'8", yeah. and could outcook Mario Batali or Eric Repair or Anthony Bourdain in terms of speed and efficiency yeah. any day. And he stands on a little soapbox He's, when he cooks. He literally stands on a, a milk carton milk cart, when yeah. he cooks. And, and he's amazing. If I may interject, just to remind you, to see Shorty in action, you can go to bonappetit.com, and under an Andrew's Waffle House article, there is a video, a 10-minute mini-documentary yes. following you the entire 24 hours, and you get to meet Shorty in, in You the get game. to meet Shorty. So anyway, Shorty introduced me this extra well-done um, pecan waffle, and then you put the poached egg on top of the waffle and Ooh. just kind of crack it open Ooh. so it's kind of a oh, sauce. Nice. Some people put uh, the syrup on there. I but was about to say, did you do syrup? No. I didn't do syrup, It was, but that was it was lovely. So now that's one of my go-to orders is like, who who would think you would go to the Waffle House and order a perfectly poached egg? All right, so you worked seven to seven, 24 straight hours. Your shift finally ends. What did you do? All I wanted to, well, I hugged a lot of people and then all I wanted to do was go home and take a shower. To your parents' home? To my parents' house. I drove home, which was probably not a good idea. So I went home and took a long, long, I call it a Hollywood shower, probably 30 minutes, thing my dad would have yelled at me in, in high school. And then I slept until like, I don't know, four in the afternoon. And then get this. I took my family. I was feeling so nostalgic. I took my family to Waffle House later that <laughs> night, and we had Waffle House. Well, I felt like a pro then. Like I was, I was calling out the nomenclature of the. I, I, and she was like, "Have you worked at the Waffle House?" And I was like, "Yep, I've worked at the Waffle House." Yes, I have. All right, Andrew Knowlton, thanks so much for joining us. Check out Andrew's awesome article on the Waffle House, twenty-four hours at the Waffle House, in the March issue of Bon Appetit, or check it out online at bonappetit.com. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. 
God is a mattress set of bones. I'm a tired mind with a weary soul. Wanna settle down, but I've grown too cold. All we got is a mattress set of bones. Maybe they will carry us somewhere warm, but for now, just stay home. All I've got is all I need. Except when it comes to company. All right, welcome back to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm still Adam Rappaport. I'm joined now by food director Carl Lolly Music. Good to be back. And Amanda Cohen, chef owner of the newly expanded 60 seat. Dirt Candy on New York's Lower East Side. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you. (laughs) Um, All right, we're just going to get going here. First question, let's say you're on a plane and you tell someone you're a chef, and they're like, oh, what kind of restaurant do you have? What, What is your answer these days? How do you describe Dirt Candy? Well, first of all, I try never to talk to anybody on a plane, (laughs) but in this dream world, um, I would say it's a vegetable restaurant. Well, first they say, what's Dirt Candy? Why would you call it Dirt Candy? And I'm always like, well, Dirt Candy... That's what I think vegetables are. They're candy from the dirt. And they're like, oh, so what does that make your restaurant? Like, you know, it's a restaurant dedicated to vegetables. That's what we celebrate. And then they either continue talking to me or they turn away. (laughs) (laughs) Have you found over the years that that you have to do less explaining, that people get it now? They're like, oh, that's cool. Or is it? Or are you still sort of having to proselytize almost? Not as much anymore. Um, definitely when we first opened, I mean, we were named the worst, the, we had the worst named restaurant ever. People are <laughs> like, what are you talking about? How could you put dirt in your name? But now, I don't know, somehow it's become part of the general lexicon. People know it. And I see the name popping up everywhere. Which oh, is like fascinating. I'm like, ooh, am I going to be like in the dictionary one day for having coining this term? I hope you trademarked it. <laughs> <laughs> I have. <laughs> Very good, Carla. You went. You went early on. You said really back early. In the day. We were trying. When was? When did you open? What year was it? October 2008. The first. All right. You just opened a new location yes. on Allen Street. The original location only 18 seats. Correct. Exactly. Right. So, Carl, you managed to. Yeah, get we in there. we we. Managed to get in. Uh, I remember feeling very special. There were people outside who didn't know that they needed a reservation. And I was fascinated by how tiny the kitchen was and what, what you were doing back there. It was really cool to be able to watch. Yeah, it was fun. Um, it was 18 seats. It was tiny. It was very hard to get into. And we have moved to this, what I think of as a giant new restaurant. It's not that big, but compared to the little one. When you opened the original one at, at 18 seats, was that just a space you could find? Or were you, or were you more like, hey, I want to do this concept. I'm not entirely sure it's going to work or whether it's going to take. What was your philosophy going in? It was both of those. The first was it was what I could afford. So we got a lot of comments. People are like, you should be in a bigger space. You know, why would you do this? I'm like, well, I can only, you know, I have $500,000 to spend on building a restaurant. This is what I can afford to build, this 300 square foot restaurant. Um, And on the other hand, I was like, I might completely fail. I don't want to spend too much money doing this. And the way we had budgeted out was that even if I basically did no one every single night, I still wouldn't lose money. Yeah, can you put into context for for us non-New York food world listeners what it costs to run a restaurant in New York and what kind of rents you might pay anywhere, say, downtown these days in the East or West Village? Oh, my gosh. It's impossible to run a restaurant here. It's so expensive. Uh, My... 350 square foot original restaurant, the rent is now about $4,000 a month. Uh, my new location, it's about 9500 I found a really good deal. And wow, that is a good deal. Yeah, it's the 2100 square feet. And so, yeah, so you're paying well over $100,000 a year for rent. Exactly. And, and if, in some of these restaurants, if you're in Midtown or something, you're paying forty grand a month. No, you're paying like 75000 That's There's insane. a restaurant on my corner. 
uh, and I live in Murray Hill, so it's like basically on this new place's park and 27th, 26th, and the rent's 100000 a month. The poor little barber next to them got kicked out. Oh. I know, I feel so bad. There are so many costs involved in a restaurant. So Little Dirt Candy was really successful. We were full every single night. We were doing 60, 65 people, three and a half turns. Was that right out of the gate, or did it take a little while for people to sort of hear about it and chatter and whatnot? That took us about four years to get to. Wow. Was there, was, was there one review or one blog post or one sort of thing that, that clicked it for you? I think just time, and it was sort of an accumulation. We never, until our fourth year, we actually didn't get a big review. So it was like one tiny review after another tiny review, and then word of mouth. And then we got, uh, we were reviewed uh, by the New York Times. That pushed us. We were already busy, but then we started really filling up our 10.30 slots on like a Tuesday night. And that was a really nice review. Two stars, and Pete very much, I mean, wonderful writer, but he seemed to very much get the restaurant. Right. He got it, and it was nice for us because I had no idea he was there. So I wasn't even trying. I... Yeah, just another guy <laughs> sitting there, and I was like, just give him his food. I don't care. It's 10.30. He came late one night, and that's when we sort of recognized him, and it was his third time. And I was like, ugh, oh. I have to stay late. There's another customer. Just get him his food. So we did okay. Just to give the listeners an idea who aren't familiar with the restaurant, the type of food you make. And then, yes, it is a vegetable restaurant. I'd be hesitant to use the word vegetarian just because for some reason I have almost kind of negative preachy connotations about vegetarian. And, but just looking at your menu, you've got Korean fried broccoli with a garlic sesame sauce, jalapeno hush puppies with maple butter, Brussels sprout tacos accompanied by smoked avocado, pickled red onion, salsa verde, crispy Brussels sprout leaves, tortilla strips, jalapenos, crema. It's... It might be vegetable, but it's not like, quote unquote, health food by any regard. It's definitely not healthy. It's not unhealthy because, uh, you know, we don't have like a lot of saturated fats. We don't have, I mean, lots of people think meat is unhealthy, but it's not. It's, it's, not, it's not locale. It's not locale. And it's not, I don't, you know, it's just dinner. It's like every other restaurant. I just want you to come in and have a really good meal. I, I don't care what your diet is. Um, I have a question. So, all right. So, we're talking about the type of food you cook, and you know, you made a point that this is not a health food restaurant. This is not a lifestyle restaurant. But what about in terms of technique and cuisine? Are you more of an Eastern style, more Western cooking? Like, who are your influences as actually chefs and, and, and types in the type of food you cook? I think I think everybody. Uh, I'm like a melting pot. Uh, I right after college, I lived in Hong Kong for two years. And that really influenced my cooking. So there's much, there's a lot more sort of like Asian techniques. I can't say that uh, there's like one person who's influenced me or these chefs that I'm like taking from. For I think the cuisine that really informs dirt candy is everything. And we can do that because I'm not like, oh, I'm not like a French bistro. I'm not an Italian restaurant. Yeah. I'm just vegetable. That's like, also that's no a pretty rules. current modern American way of cooking. It's, yeah. it's, it's just doing good, tasty food. Um, you know, in one interview, you had mentioned Charlie Trotter's vegetable book, which was interesting. Charlie Trotter, the chef from Chicago, passed away a few years ago, sadly. Um, groundbreaking, sort of very high end, but modern restaurant. Um, he came out that, I mean, that book came out years ago. I know. And it was a beautiful, stunning coffee table book with the, Charlie's very sort of architecturally gorgeous food. And at the time, I was like, wow, that's pretty ballsy. Who's going to buy this? And when, when did you come across it, or what was your take on it? Actually, when I was in cooking school, it was given to me as a gift from all my classmates. The interesting thing with that book is it actually still stands t- like today. You can still look at it and learn from it. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I'm always like, I'll never have a book that's that pretty. Well, it's funny just in the the way that 
traditional kitchens are set up, the vegetable preparation station was the low man on the totem pole always. So there's always, you know, if you've arrived as a cook, it's because you can cook proteins and the fish and the meat. That was like the truly skilled. I think there's such a huge shift now with chefs that the real, a real sign of your technique and your skill as a chef is to make a carrot delicious. Right. And that I think has been a seismic shift maybe over the past three years. I mean, it's kind of amazing that you were open for four years before you got the the review that put you to busy all the time. Right. I mean, that's a, putting in a lot of time. There has been this shift. I think from the moment I opened, people were coming up and asking me like, oh, you know, are vegetables the new it thing? You know, are they the new trend? And I'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, but really, you know, like pork and pork belly and bacon yeah. just held onto it. And then over the last couple of years, there's definitely been this shift. And you see chefs starting to care more about the sides and less about that one protein. But we're seeing a shift in, I think, dining across the country. You know, for years, um, French cuisine sort of ruled. One protein, two sides. That's what you saw on every plate. And in the last 10 years, you are seeing a different way of eating. Does it put more pressure on you? I mean, in a way to be a really good vegetable restaurant in a world of crappy vegetarian food, you could really stand out. But do you feel more pressure now that she- that chefs at all kinds of restaurants are putting vegetables at the forefront of yeah, the plate? Yeah, it's really annoying. Well, having a vegetable tasting menu 10 years ago was a huge deal. And now it's not a big deal. Um, so you do have customers who I think are also changing how they eat. Um, all right, Amanda, before we send you off, we're going to give you a little B.A quiz okay ready i hope i don't fail flat white or bulletproof coffee flat white why i just like it i think it's i don't know i like that whole australian thing and i'm dying to go to australia (laughs) good answer (laughs) cool ranch or nacho cheese cool ranch really yeah wow there's a high five going on over there yeah totally have you always been a cool ranch person i actually like all kinds and i want a mixed bag like, I don't understand why they don't do that of every oh. single flavor. Um, all right. I like this one. Breakfast for dinner or dinner for breakfast? Dinner for breakfast. Wow. Really? Yeah. I like savory more. Oh. Like, if you were to make dinner for breakfast tomorrow, what would you make yourself? Oh, well, I have nothing in my fridge. This is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Like, it's more like if I think dinner for breakfast, it's more like Asian noodles. Yeah. yeah. That oh, that's kind cool. of thing. Uh, gin or vodka martini? Gin. 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 Old school. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a, pre- a particular brand you dig? Or? I like Hendrix. Nice. nice. Kind of the coolest bottle on the shelf yeah, also. Right. Uh, this is another one I like. Dinner with Barack or Dinner with Michelle? Oh. Those are the Obamas, by the way. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> That's tough. Uh, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like maybe Barack. Only because I feel like he's a little um, less healthy. So we could have, like, more fried food. Yeah, he'd have a beer with you. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I mean... Smoke a cigarette, too. Yeah. Listen, I mean, Michelle's amazing, but I think Barack would be more fun. He's a pretty charming guy. Um, Avocado toast or kale salad? Avocado toast. Are you over kale salad? I don't know if I ever really liked kale salad. (laughs) Wow, wow. (laughs) But I really like avocados. (laughs) They're the best things ever. All right, final question. Butter or olive oil? Oh, that's like choosing between my children. Sophie's choice. Sophie's choice oh, of fast. Oh, oh, um, olive oil. All right. There you have it. Amanda Cohen of Dirt Candy. Thank you very much for joining us. Carl Lally Music. Thank you. Thanks.
now joined by Claire Saffitz, Associate Food Editor, and Allison Roman, Senior Food Editor. Thanks for coming, guys. Hi. Hi. Guys, it's wintertime still. Won't end. You're inside. You might want to do some baking, but I kind of feel, and I think a lot of people feel, there, there are people who bake, and there are people who don't bake. Myself is kind of one of those not bakers. Is that is that fair to say? I feel like those that don't consider themselves a baker are those that don't particularly love baked goods, which I know that you don't have a sweet tooth. Oh, Claire, we had an issue in the test kitchen the other day where I was sort of, I was a little demeaning to Allison's fruit pies. Right. I love a fruit pie and I think it's the ultimate dessert. And I disagree. My definition of dessert is it has to either be chocolate, caramel, or like peanut butter. Right. And and I think, I feel like you're like a one bite dessert kind of guy. Maybe you go back for the second, but I feel like when people say, I'm not a baker, I don't want to do it. I think what they're actually saying is they don't like sweets. They don't like sweets. So they they're don't want to like, crunchy. they're not going to spend four hours making something they're going to have two bites of. All right. So the question is, how do we get people to bake? And Claire, you've started this column on bonappetit.com, which I think is very cool. And I think perhaps it'll, it'll convert me. It's called baking one, two, three. And can you give us a general gist of how this yeah, column works? I, mean, I think people are intimidated by by baking because it's just there's this feeling when you put something in the oven and you don't really know what's going to happen while it's in there and you kind of are anxious and nervous and you're like is this going to turn out or not so the idea of the column is that a complicated dessert is really just a whole bunch of simple preparations put together into one like big thing so it takes one base recipe which is relatively straightforward and it tells you how to make it and if that's all you want to do is learn how to make that one thing then that's it and that's great but if you want to go kind of want to go for it and make something like really spectacular then we teach you how to add on to it with a couple of other recipes so it's really technique based and it's really there to kind of if all you want to learn is the basics, then that's great. But if you want to like go all out, then you yeah. can do that. So it's, too. it's it's kind of an easy entry point. For instance, at Christmas time, we did a stunning bouche de Noël, which mm-hmm. is the French sort of Christmas log, and you've got the little mushrooms and everything, and it looks like a, an actual log, a, a decomposing at, log. Yes, <laughs> yes. At its base, all it is is a, a classic jelly roll cake, exactly. Right? Also known as a ho ho. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's correct. <laughs> One of the greatest desserts of all time. Exactly. But yeah, basically a, a sheet pan. You make a cake whipped cream rolled up. That's it. Literally could not be easier. Right. And so, <laughs> even you can do it, Adam. <laughs> you, right. Yes, even I can do it. Right. So there's different levels of buy-in. I think certainly some of these sort of like showstopper desserts, you see them, you're like, I can't do that. And then you're like, well, it's actually just a series of, of steps. We have a new one, two, three post going up this week. Mm-hmm. What, what's, what's, what's the topic this week? This is pad mm. which is a very sort of general base recipe that goes into a lot of different desserts. Um, and you can make a lot of different things with it. So the base... Such as? Like, to explain what pad shoe yeah, is. Yeah, pad is a cooked... Pat means paste, so it's a shoe paste, which is uh, the sort of base recipe that you use to make puffs of all kinds, so cream puffs, can kind of go sweet or savory, Uh, so it's a very versatile recipe. Um, So how do you make it? What's the basic technique? So the basic technique is you take water and butter, uh, and you cook, and a little salt, and you bring it to a simmer on the stove so the butter melts, and I like to add milk to it. Uh, Some pastry chefs add milk because it makes it a little softer, a little richer. So I go half water, half milk, and you bring it to a simmer. In a little pot, not a fry pan, but like a pot. Yeah, in a little saucepan. And then you, in like one straight shot, add flour. Uh, into the saucepan, and then you stir it really, really vigorously until it kind of forms a 
paste and it kind of creates a ball in the pot um, and the idea is that you're trying to cook the flowers and then you basically off the heat you beat eggs into it one at a time and you mix in between it every time it looks a little curdled and weird and you're like I don't know if this is right but just keep going a mixer helps but you don't need one at all I kind of no. like to do it by hand yeah. uh, with a wooden spoon which is my favorite kitchen tool especially for baking I mean the final consistency is kind of like a very glossy slightly stretchy dough I like to hold the spoon up and if the dough falls off in like kind of a sheet and leaves a little v-shape on the end of the spoon then that's how you know these are the things i look for when i'm baking it's like a tried and true indicator you know with the recipe that i developed it's like i'm pretty confident that it's always five eggs but if you know circumstances are different or i added a little too much flour it's like maybe i add another yolk or so but so i'm just i'm really one thing we always talk about in the kitchen is like you cook to the indicator not to the recipe in like not to the like exact quantities of ingredients and then you have your done your your pate choux is done and then it's ready to be baked so um so if you, or if you want to make little puffs you basically just spoon them off or mm-hmm. you can put it in a pastry bag and yeah. just pipe it out onto the sheet tray what sort of temperature I like to bake it hot first. The idea is that the steam in the dough is puffing to to hollow it out. Uh, So it helps to bake it in a hot oven. So I go at like 425 for the first half of baking uh, because you don't want to have gone through all that work and then you have like little flat. There's no puff to your cream puff. That would be a bummer. So how many minutes are we talking? Uh, About 15 minutes at 425. I mean, it kind of depends on the size of the thing that you're making. If you're making like really tiny little cream puffs and it'll go less time. And then I decrease the temperature to about 350 and bake it all the way through. Because it also has to dry out. If it's not, if the dough is too wet, it'll collapse. That's a lot of baking time. Yeah, it's kind of hard to overcook pad Yeah. unless you're burning the bottoms. What I like, I, I, all right, so I am a sometime baker. So we, I've made pâte before, and what I love to make is gougere, which mm-hmm. is taking that same pâte but mixing in some some Gruyere cheese or whatever, and throwing those cheese puffs in the those puffs in the oven. And if you have a cocktail party and people come over and they can smell that, it will blow their minds. Yeah. you'll well, be the most popular host in your town. <laughs> well, you already are. You you throw me a party, <laughs> but I'm saying that's what's funny though is you would make gougères, but you wouldn't make a chouquette, which a chouquette is basically the same thing with little sugar on top because that's baking. But a gougère is like cocktail host food. That's funny because I will make. A chicken pot pie, but I will not make a pie. <laughs> exactly. Not a you know what? Pie. There's a lot of psychology wow. behind this. All right, that that is interesting. All right, sorry. I've asked you guys to come up for us, sort of non bakers, to give us some basic tenets of bacon. Give us some. Give us some lessons, some tips that we can all take away from this segment. Who's first? I think if we're going to break it down, it's like technique, ingredients, and equipment. All right, cool. Let's do techniques first. So techniques. It's difficult because there are so many different things that you can bake. And I feel like that's, you know, when people say cream your butter and sugar, like people don't do it long enough um, for the most part. So and that's that, like usually in like a, a, a stand mixer or whatever. A stand or mixer, a cake, a cookie. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else you cream butter and sugar for. But most cakes and cookies that have you do that, people aren't doing that enough. Well, how long is enough? You really want to go, I'd say like three to four minutes. And that's if you're using a, a good stand mixer. If you're using a handheld, you're going to take a little bit longer. Basically what you're doing here is you're you're forcing air into your butter and your sugar and you're creating volume. And if things bake flat, if whether it's a cake or a cookie, it's because you haven't done that enough. Mm, okay, so give it time. It should get nice and pale, almost turn whiter and yes. fluffy and give it time. All right, I like that one. Number one, Claire, what do you got? Two, temperature is so important for baking. And so get all your ingredients from temperature. I'm about to go bake a chocolate cake downstairs in the test kitchen, and I, before I came up here, I took out all my ingredients. It's like your dairy and your eggs should just be 
Room so temp. butter, milk, eggs, all room temp. All those temp. things, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because things don't combine as well mm-hmm. if they're different temperatures. You just have, they have yeah. to all be For the, the most part, I think, like, if you're making pie crust, you want your butter chilled. Yes. Right, right. But, like, yeah, it's like whole, you want everything room temperature unless you want it really until cold. You well, don't, right? like, well, that's interesting <laughs> with, 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 like, pie crust and biscuits. You want those little... You want these, those pebbles of butter that then melt and turn into air pockets inside. Correct? Right, right. Well, well there's you, a few different ways of doing it, but yeah. You want it room temp unless you really don't. Yeah. <laughs> All right, right. You another technique. You got another technique for us, Allison? Uh, well, on the, on the temperature tip, under baking or over baking, you need to have a thermometer in your oven so you know what temperature it is. Because well, that's, that's great advice in general. Whatever your thermometer says on your knob is usually not exactly what yeah. the no. temperature and it is. And often not even close. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So an oven thermometer is like yeah. less than $10 and it will in- improve your baking. All right. What else, Claire? What do you got? I would say it's hard to call this out because it's something I don't always do, but should, which is like reading the entire recipe all the way through. Oh my God. And so important. I can't tell you how many times I, you're always in a rush and then you like, you always forget that one step. Then getting all your ingredients out and ready to go before you start. All right. Let's talk, let's talk, um, uh, tools. What, what, what tools should the novice baker make sure that he or she goes out and buys? I think if you want to get serious about baking, number one is a scale. Spend Interesting. Tw- yeah, spend $20 and get a little digital scale for your kitchen, and it will. it's so much easier. But I just, why? I hate more than anything washing like the quarter cup measure and then the third cup measure and then mm. the half cup measure. It's like just you can dump everything into one bowl. Aren't most ingredients on recipes in two-thirds cup, half cup, or whatever? Well, it's a standard unit of measurement that America is very fond of, but um, I think eventually, hopefully in the next 10 years or so, we can all gravitate towards the metric system when it comes to cooking and baking especially, if you'll notice that well, you can a lot always, of cookbooks... You can, you can always move to Canada. If well, you, know. <laughs> you know, I just might have to. Um, you know, a lot of cookbooks that come out recently, especially baking ones, have started putting not only the... American unit of measurement, but also the metric. So it'll say like a third cup slash 55 grams. Right. So it's so, more I mean, precise in your yeah, mind. Yeah, I mean, Is some things like a cup of milk, if I measure a cup of milk and Allison measures a cup of milk, that weighs the same. But flour in particular as an ingredient is something where a cup of flour that if two different people are measuring, it can actually have like a 25%, up to yeah. a 25% difference how in dense, weight. How densely it's packed or not yeah. packed and that will humidity. really affect your yeah. final Light product. Light brown sugar, so. how tightly are you packing it? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's one. What else you got? I really love my KitchenAid. I don't okay. use it that often, um, but when I do, it's I'm so glad that I have it, and it really does a better job than any other stand mixer. Um, it's an investment, but it's it's well made. It's going to last forever. It looks nice in my your mom's kitchen. had her KitchenAid for 40 years. Yeah, it still works. Yeah. What else? I think for baking. Like, get rid of those really crappy aluminum baking sheets mm. that you got when you, like, moved into your first apartment from Target, which I still have those, but I, like, got better ones. Note to self. Yeah. Get rid of those tonight. <laughs> I think, like, you you know, you want – I think people don't hesitate to invest in cookware where we say, like, get, you know, a uh, heavy bottom pot with thick sides. And, like, you kind of still want the same thing with baking. You want, like, a decent rimmed baking sheet and cake pans and aren't you just don't want everything to burn that you bake all right all right well guys thank you so much for schooling me on the art of baking and please check out claire saffet's new ish column on bonappetit.com baking one two three thanks guys thank you Okay, thanks for listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. You can check out all our recipes and plenty more at bonappetit.com.
Seed Foodcast is recorded to a digital device in the small conference room on the 36th floor of One World Trade Center in New York City. Our engineer is Mitra Kaboli, with production assistance from Bill Cushing and Kerry Polis, and is produced by Scott DeSimon. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or at bonappetit.com. Thank you.